Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. Matt Chancy is with Coastal One, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Well, good afternoon, everyone. This is Matt Chancy, and today is another episode of the Tax Alpha Solution Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Today, I've got a special guest, and it's William Scott Goldman. He is the founding member of Goldman Law Group. He is representing creative business clients throughout the U.S. and internationally. Having pioneered the field of branding law, he's currently ranked number five in the world with over 18,000 successful trademark filings. William Scott Goldman, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me here, Matt. Good stuff. Very excited to learn about you know this branding law. Haven't heard about this before, but you know before we get there, you know do me a favor. Please begin by telling us a little bit about your background and how you got into this with the Goldman Law Group. Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, basically, uh, we represent both startups and established companies with an emphasis on business and branding law. And I'm the founder of Goldman Law Group. I offer over 30 years of experience and. I'm ranked uh, top 10 in the world with over 18,000 successful USPTO trademark filings. The uh, firm itself was established back in 2006 as a one-of-a-kind business and branding IP law firm. Our tagline is representing innovation, and as that implies, we offer innovative legal solutions for innovative business clients. Our focus is very entrepreneurial, and most clients are small businesses tech startups, performing artists, graphic design studios, ad agencies, uh, creators, if you will, uh, but major international corporations such as Marriott, Hilton, and American Express appreciate our cutting uh, edge approach too. And we now have clients throughout Canada, um, Asia, Europe, South America, Central America, Middle East, Australia, uh, New Zealand, and not to mention all 50 states from New York to LA and everywhere in between. Very nice. Well, well, you know, let me ask a curious question. When you went to law school, of all the different ways you could apply the discipline, what attracted you to, to this branding law space that you kind of created? How did you get there? Um, great question. Well, it's really a subspecialty. What I focused on was intellectual property law, which of course is patents, trademarks, copyrights. My main focus was the uh, copyright and trademark aspect. And then the longer I did this, um, the more I saw a lot of different connections. Obviously, when I started doing this, it was in the early 90s. And probably over the last 10 to 15 years or so, there's been the emergence of branding. Um, brands are all around us. It's a huge emphasis, whether it's um, commercial or uh, corporate branding or even personal branding. And um, I've just seen 
just that development, that need for legal counsel, somebody that could bridge the gap to advise clients as to the various uh, branding concerns, um, creating just a general awareness. A lot of times people aren't even attuned to these types of legal issues. And so over time, I just um, more or less came up with this field, began seeing different connections, different relationships between cases and um, started educating clients on it. And then after a time, I was well received. And then I figured I would just uh, start writing a case book, the only case book of its kind, branding law cases and materials. And that was well received as well. And um, from there, I just ran with it. And now I'm in the process of putting together the uh, second uh, edition too, uh, with more updates. And uh, you know, it's a evolving field and it's nice to be able to pioneer something to be an expert uh the world's only expert in a particular field yeah well what do they say the the riches are in the niches right (laughs) there you go exactly well put and i guess today with the proliferation of social media and the people that are on social media and the way they portray themselves on it i guess that probably gets baked in a lot into this, you know, this image, this brand, this awareness of people out there, because it's, you know, I think historically it was viewed as products, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and things like that. But today mm-hmm. I would say people are becoming the brand in in many instances. And I think that leans right into what you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. That's the whole aspect of personal branding. So basically a branding law, it's really a two-pronged approach you have, as you just pointed out, the uh, commercial aspect, the um, corporate branding, and that usually relies on the intellectual property law, patents, trademarks, copyrights. Uh, but then this personal branding field covers a lot of issues with um, rights of publicity law and uh, even defamation and uh, things like that. So, uh, so it's really a two-pronged approach. There's some crossover every now and again, but usually they follow those two main tracks. And, um, and usually, you know, you even see it in the, um, in the sporting world where individual athletes, say 20, 30 years ago, before all this uh, Twitter and social media, they were playing more for the team itself. And now everybody's about their own personal brand. Um, it's the individual, whether it's the um, sporting figure, the musician, you know, the recording artist, the actor or actress, all of these individuals are pushing their own personal brand where years ago that wasn't even as much of a uh, uh, need or requirement or prior to social media really didn't exist all that much. Now, I played college football and if my coach would have known that I was out there trying to promote my brand more than I was trying to promote the team, there's a coach right now rolling over in a grave somewhere by hearing you talk about players out there trying to promote their own self-interest on the field and in social media from a branding aspect. But I get your point. It's become evident that I think people are doing that because, you know, they may not always be with that team, but um, as long as they're in the league or they're a player, as long as they can build their following and their brand, that's something they can ultimately monetize. Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. And unfortunately, it seems that's more and more evident these days. Um, these athletes are so busy uh, building their own personal brands a lot of times, a lot of the star players, uh, whether it's endorsement deals, whether it's trying to promote themselves on um, social media with likes and follows and whatever else, 
that oftentimes the team itself, the uh, team aspect is um, taking the back seat, so to speak. They used to say there's no I in team, but uh, that may not be the case anymore, unfortunately. Yeah, no, the I is in million followers. Uh, yeah. exactly. <laughs> that's, where, that's where the I is, right? Mm-hmm. Very true. It's a whole different world, that's for sure. Whole different world out there. I got gotcha. you. So I'm sure there are other law firms that are in kind of the IP space, but, you know, and, and clearly you've kind of already dipped your toe in this for us a little bit, but what makes the Goldman Law Group different than the other firms that are working in that IP space? Well, you know, nobody else uh, certainly has this uh, focus on branding law, that's for sure. And um, recognizing the need for a new type of law firm, the startup clients, a firm basically bridges the gap between the non-lawyer legal service provider type companies out there and the more traditional law firm structure. So we're sort of uh, in between both of those, uh, really the best of both worlds, in my opinion. We... um, Rather than dealing with the hourly billing, which uh, is typical of these established type firms, we favor the uh, predictable flat fee payment uh, structure. And since our clients, again, are these startups, bootstrapping uh, founders and entrepreneurs, they appreciate that, of course. It's much more predictable. And um, by limiting our firm's practice areas to those legal fields most relevant to emerging companies, that keeps overhead costs low, which we then pass on to our startup clients. And uh, we offer attorney access 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which is virtually unheard of in the industry. So um, again, that all ties into our client base, enabling Goldman Law Group to better serve the early stage business clients everywhere. So what I just heard you say is if I have some brain busting idea at three o'clock in the morning, that's going to change the world. On a, I can call you up right then and you're going to protect me before the sun comes up. Uh-huh. You're well said. Yes, indeed. Um, basically, like I said before, we have clients pretty much on every continent. Um, we have them on the West Coast. So we're here in Washington, D.C., but that doesn't limit us. Uh, this is a a world that knows no uh, boundaries, uh, creativity, uh, ingenuity, does not sleep. I like to say that all the time, and it's true. So um, if you have an idea or anybody has an idea early in the morning, regardless, uh, you know, 12 hours uh, ahead, you know, say it's um, 3, 4 a.m., that's only 3, 4 in the afternoon uh, in Asia, for instance, and uh, we're always here, so... You can reach out and uh, send an email, phone call, what have you, and we'll be there to answer whatever questions and, as you said, to get it protected by uh, the time the sun comes up the next day. There, there you go. There you go. You know, I try to keep a sketch pad next to the bed. So if I wake mm-hmm. up, my mind's racing and I have a bunch of ideas, I can kind of write them down and get them out of my nugget. The problem is, is when I wake up in the morning, I can hardly read my handwriting. If I really- <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've all been there. Very true. Very true. <laughs> So, you know, you brought this up a little bit. So the field of branding law that you've developed, and you mentioned this a little bit, but I'd like you to go back through it. I know you talked about what it is, but when you're developing a brand of law, a niche within a niche, right? Like mm-hmm. what is it, what it entails in the development of that and creating this, this space, this frontier per se, in the way you're representing those clients? What, what goes into that and, and what makes it so unique for a 
layperson. Clearly, you understand that because you're more sophisticated in that than we are. But help us lay people understand what that really means and what that involves. Um, well, you know, basically, it wasn't something that I ever thought I would create. I didn't. Uh, it pretty much found me rather than the other way around. But um, having practiced this for a long time, that is IP law, copyright, trademark in particular, and being attuned to branding, it's something I've always been fascinated with. I just kept seeing uh, various connections uh, between the field of branding and um, the legal field, specifically intellectual property. And over time, uh, similar to what you were just talking about, I kept a, a pad of paper, different ideas that I'd come up with, different cases that I'd see. I started filing them away. I started um, taking notes and uh, coming up with different theories, basically coming up with the structure of this whole field, uh, essentially a, um, an outline, if you will. And uh, over time, it just came together. And then from there, I started writing the book. Again, having that outline was key, just kind of realizing the different areas of law that um, all combined to form this uh, field of branding law. And uh, then from there, I was just uh, researching more cases. And uh, over time, the book just came together. And as a result, this field of branding law emerged. So that's uh, basically how it all uh, came about. So how much different is it, you know, between trademark law and branding law? I mean, obviously they're related. They're like cousins per se, or at least from my perspective, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're like third cousins. I don't know. But, you know, how different is trademark law and branding law from, you know, it's obviously, I guess, the devil's in the details, right? Sure, sure. Well, that's a very good question. You know, with um, branding law, yes, trademarks is a big part of it. Uh, and one common misconception, even among practitioners and jurists, is that trademarks and brands are synonymous, albeit an oversimplification perhaps, but I like to say not all trademarks are brands, but most brands are trademarks. Uh, brands are essential to the consumer experience and protectable slogans, names, logos are just component parts or subsets of the whole, which are then amplified through marketing, which creates an evolution from brands to branding. So there's really more to branding than just trademarks. Um, patents, even copyrights all come into play with branding law. And that just uh, led to the creation of this brand new legal field, no pun intended, uh, which really goes much deeper and covers a uh, much wider range of legal subjects than just trademarks. Interesting. Interesting. You know, I played a game one time uh, recently, too, in the past few months where people would read off like historical slogans from like, you know, TV commercials and stuff. And you would have oh, to wow. try to name the product that that was their little catchy slogan. Right. You know, or whatever. Yes. And it was funny, like a lot of the slogans you remembered, like they all rang a bell, but we wouldn't always connect them with the right product. We would sometimes forget mm -hmm. which product it was and connect them. Like, man, I remember that little jingle or that little thing, but I, but I couldn't remember who had connected it to. So that stuff is catchy and it sticks with us, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, true, true. That's why they pay the big bucks to these uh, different brand managers and advertising agencies to come up with these slogans and uh, taglines, names, logos, mascots, everything that uh, combines to the brand. And then they focus, test it to death and uh, eventually come up with whatever uh, should be a winning recipe for 
uh, investing the uh, money into these various advertising campaigns. And then years later, you'll be playing the game, like you just said, and you'll remember the jingle or you know, essentially it's branding the uh, concept into one's mind. And that's just yeah. the power of this branding. Yeah. Even colors, like colors mean certain things to people when they see them. So when they're building logos and stuff, picking the right colors that accentuate kind of the image they want to project. I just, the detail and the nuance that people go into that, you know, I, um, I am not a person that processes that information that way when I think about it, but in arrears, when I see the work that somebody else has done to create it and the thought that went in it, I can appreciate it. I just don't see it on the front, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah, of course. And a lot of it is just very subconscious. Um, you know, they tend to say, psychologists, they'll say that the color blue is um, attuned to one's sense of trust, reliability, that sort of thing. Hence, you'll see a lot of banks using the color blue and other financial institutions and likewise for different colors representing different moods or feelings. And then when they, uh, when these companies come up with their uh, branding strategies and the uh, various color schemes, they'll even be uh, get as uh, specific enough to define the actual shades. They'll use the uh, Pantone colors and they'll come up with a whole uh, guide as far as how to um, uh, represent the name itself, the uh, other branding assets, the colors, the exact uh, tones and shades and that sort of thing. So it's very, very specialized, very, very specific. Yeah, very specialized, very specific. So you know, I am sure at this point with you know the 18,000 successful trademark filings that you've made, You've worked with tons of various startups and entrepreneurial clients. What would you say in your experience are some of the largest uh, branding mistakes that somebody might make when getting into a new entrepreneurial endeavor? Um, Very good question. Uh, Besides the uh, inconsistent messaging, which is what I consider the second biggest branding mistake, the uh, number one biggest mistake is when companies fail to select an adequately strong brand name. And what I mean by that is while suggestive or descriptive names um, typically require less marketing effort, they're much more difficult to enforce. So that's why our firm always emphasizes taking these key legal considerations into account during the name creation process. Uh, In other words, fanciful or even arbitrary names better serve a business long-term because at the end of the day, why invest resources in something as essential as a brand or brand development when competitors are potentially able to use something highly similar as well. So that's always the risk that somebody um, is running when they create a new name, when they try to position themselves and create a new brand. It's uh, sort of a fine line. You want something that's memorable, that's marketable, but at the same time, something that is distinctive enough to actually provide a decent level of legal protection. Okay. Okay. So, so I'm trying to think of examples in my head while you're laying that out. And I guess, so like if I were going to be in the soda business and I was going to make a cola, like if I wanted to use a descriptive name brand to the cola, I might call it sugary, sweet, delicious cola, right? Like, but like that might be what it is, but calling it, but that, but that, but, but, 
many people might use a name like that in describing what it actually is, you know, tasty beverage or whatever. But if I call it Coca-Cola and then Coca-Cola becomes the brand and then people are like, oh, but that in my brain, that means tasty, sweet, delicious goodness or whatever, you know, because that's what I associate with it. But the Coca-Cola is protectable where the sugary sweet soda deal is not so protectable. That's am I thinking up the right track there? Yeah, actually, that's yeah, pretty good. Um, so uh, what you're explaining technically is a very fine point. Um, it's not really descriptive under trademark law. The uh, sugary sweet or whatever you just said, uh, that's actually considered generic, which is non unprotectable at all. So uh, that would be rejected outright by the trademark office. But you're on the right track with what you're saying. Um, a descriptive mark um, for cola, just to throw something out there, uh, putting me on the spot here. We could say maybe, uh, let's see, maybe sweet cola or something like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's somewhat similar to what you had, but yeah, that's more descriptive, whereas suggestive could be Coca-Cola because they said the original formulation had some uh, elements of cocaine perhaps involved with it. Uh, I don't know how true that is or if it's just urban, uh, urban legend, <laughs> but uh, based off of that, you know, we're talking early uh, 20th century or something. Um, based off of that, it could be said that it was considered suggestive because um, you know, the word coca is similar to cocaine or, you know, on a more G-rated level, you know, we could say it's a cocoa bean, maybe a cocoa bean or something like that is uh, involved with it. That might be more of a coffee type formulation, so it's hard to say. But um, but yeah, in that case, it's more of a, a suggestive mark and uh, something that's a purely made up word. That's going to be your strongest trademark, but it's least memorable. So if you just took a few random letters and put them together and use that as your brand for the uh, Coca-Cola. You just take the, uh, the word Coke and um, you know, maybe spell it backwards, you know, whatever that comes out to be, E-K-O-C. Then um, in that case, that would be the, um, the strongest trademark. It's hardest to uh, brand, kind of like the word Exxon. doesn't exist in the English language, very strong trademark. Whereas um, Shell you know, that's going to be something that's considered arbitrary. Nobody associates Shell with gasoline or Apple with computers. So, um, you know, that would be a good example of the uh, second strongest type of trademark, something that's arbitrary. And then something that's um, considered more suggestive to use the gas station example might be uh, BP, British Petroleum, because uh, that more or less describes what the product is. So, yeah, it kind of gives you some different examples of how that continuum works. Whereas, you know, you see something on the corner that just says gas, that's going to be, um, you know, some third party station or what have you, which I personally wouldn't trust. But, um, you know, something like that's going to be considered a generic mark and that's not going to be protectable at all. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. I mean, look, the world is an evolving place. And I'm sure this that this type of IP and branding law has certainly evolved over the years and the decades that you've been involved in it. And now, you know, it's not just the physical world. There's the virtual world and the meta world and all these mm -hmm. other new places that are coming out. Are are those creating new challenges for the for the branding space and branding IP? 
Yeah, it's definitely um, changing the scope of IP law in general. Um, I recently published an article on the uh, Bloomberg.com website a couple months back, and it's dealing with all of the different uh, considerations, different IP issues that are involved with NFTs and um, these virtual assets. It used to be on the, uh, the most basic level, property law was dealing with tangible assets. You either own an object, you own a piece of real property, real estate, and that's the most tangible uh, type of ownership there is. And then came intellectual property, where of course you're just dealing with one's creations, whether it's a piece of music that's on a CD or a painting that's hanging on the wall, a book that's on the shelf, um, or like we've been talking about up to this point, various trademarks, branded assets. Um, so that's gonna be the intellectual property um, realm. And then this is just taking everything one step further where you have these virtual type assets, uh, various creations that don't even exist um, in a tangible uh, medium. So you don't have necessarily um, something that's a physical object that you can buy and hold. This is more something that you just uh, download digitally and you're just one of many owners. So, um, so it's a very different world, this whole NFT space and this uh, virtual ownership. Uh, and it's just rapidly evolving, you know, over the past uh, maybe year or two really is when we've started to see various issues and that sort of thing. Yeah, I don't think I can exactly wrap my head around a non-fungible token yet, but uh, <laughs> clearly there are people out there that are willing to spend money on it. I just don't think I'm one of them yet. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, uh, it's a little too cutting edge in my opinion. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, who knows? Maybe those people will have the last laugh uh, 10, 20 years from now when these assets are, uh, are worth millions, if not billions. But for right now, I think I'm quite happy staying on the sidelines and helping people with their IP needs in regards sure. to any uh, NFTs. Sure, sure. I mean, I've heard some interesting use cases for stuff, but it may take years, like you said, or decades for those things to ultimately play out and then potentially monetize. So, you know, yeah. I don't know, be long for the game at that point. So you know, that's, that's somebody else's problem, not my problem. Yes, indeed, indeed. I totally agree with that. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, you know, William, this has been a lot of fun. You know, if somebody were to look for you and try to find you out there to know how to get in touch to say, hey, I want to learn more about what you're doing in this in this branding IP space, how would they go about finding you in the Goldman Law Group? Sure. They could reach out direct via email and that would be WSG as in William Scott Goldman at GoldmanLawGroup.com. Or they could go to our website, which is, again, goldmanlawgroup.com. And then there's a, um, a form they could fill out, and that's a, uh, just a basic contact form. And then once that's received, I'll email them, like I say, 24-7, uh, uh, 365 days a year. Somebody's always here to uh, answer those requests. There you go. Good stuff. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank everyone for tuning in today. You know, we got a little peek into if you are out there trying to build a brand, if you are trying to become a celebrity, if you are the I in team and uh, and you are trying to figure out how to monetize who you are in your own personal brand, 
William Scott Goldman, um, his branding IP that he has developed with Goldman Law Group, I think would be someone worth a, a phone call to see if you're moving in the right direction. Yes, indeed. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't have said it better myself there, Matt. That pretty much uh, summarizes everything we talked about. There you go. Good stuff. Well, William, I appreciate you being on the podcast with us today. For all the listeners out there, this was Matt Chancy, the Tax Alpha Solution Podcast. Until we meet again, have a great week. Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. 